Welcome, you're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I am Darren Kaster, your host, and we are short the Stefan Hostetter today because he is otherwise engaged. He really, really wanted to be here because there was a, oh, is there so much to talk about, about last night's debate, the Canadian Federal uh, McLean's Magazine Leaders debate. Uh, lots to say about that. We're going to have a little bit to say about that a little bit later in the program, uh, a little bit after the first break here, uh, where we have uh, uh, Katie from 350, Katie Krilov from 350 Toronto, going to come in about the debate. And Stefan is raring to go. He's got a list full of notes. And uh, he said he was very, very sad he couldn't be here today. So he will be back next week. We'll continue this conversation uh, in the world's longest ever uh, election campaign. There will be lots more uh, to come from that as well. But before we get to that, I had uh, the absolute pleasure, uh, and I've been very fortunate to have met uh, Tom Menemanakis uh, at an event uh, at CSI the other day, actually under my under the auspices of my, my actual job. Uh, we had a great conversation uh, on the side of the event, and the more we talked, uh, I eventually I just decided, you know what, Tom, you've got to come on the program. So he's here right now in the studio with me from Ethos Assets. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Darren. Nice to be here. So we're going to talk a little bit about what your uh, business is here and, and the, the reason why the word ethos is in there with the word assets. So before we get to the details of sort of the background of sort of what is the business case for your business and, and the details of what your business is, I would like it very much if you would just tell me, uh, retell me this, the story to our listeners that you told me when we first met about how it is that you ended up in the, in the job that you're doing and just a little bit about what that is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, over the past 10 to 12 years, I've been dealing specifically in the auctions and liquidations world. For a lot of people who don't know what that is, you know, if you ever watch Storage Wars or Auction Hunters on, on TV, well, I was that person, but on a bigger scale. I dealt with a lot of the commercial, industrial, manufacturing industries. When big things failed, you know, whether it's a small restaurant or big manufacturing facilities, the banks, the lawyers, the trustees, I'm the guy they hired to either appraise the assets to find out what they had or liquidate and auction them off because, hey, they wanted to recover as much money as possible. Now, during that time, I'm a social advocate. You know, I believe in the environment. I believe in recycling, repurposing, and, yes, donating things, you know, to charitable organizations. I was constantly struggling with a lot of these corporations and these businesses throwing away stuff that had a lot of value, whether it's machinery, parts, unused product. They were just throwing it away. To them, it was waste. They couldn't recover any money or they feel they couldn't have recovered anything. In spite of everything that I try to do with these organizations, look, you can recycle that. Look, you can donate that. You can do something purposeful with it. It was just, you know, falling on deaf ears. So I decided uh, a couple of years ago to repurpose my business to take more of a socially responsible, you know, initiative and start repurposing and utilizing all these unwanted, wasteful assets that they thought to help them fund, you know, social initiatives charities, nonprofits, and other social purpose programs within our community and across Canada. So let's let's underline that sort of the the main point there I think a little bit uh, which was the idea and I and I think that at some level a lot of people are aware that this probably happens to a degree but let's let's really put an underline on the, the on the degree to which it does happen which is what we're talking about here we're we're not talking about um, even just the immensely important issue of you know stuff going to landfill when it should when it could and should be recycled a lot of the time we're talking about and I'd like you some to give us some examples here a lot of the time we're actually talking about stuff where it's perfectly good stuff. Yeah. The stuff is still functional, it's still useful, it's still capable of providing economic value, but at the end of the day, if it costs more to store it until you can sell it or to, to ship it to somebody else who can use it, it gets junked because it's a pure bottom line. If this costs less than that, then we go with this and that's it. I'll throw you some numbers. Last year in 2014, worldwide, the retail economy was about $15 trillion. Yes, trillion dollars. And this is hard goods from electronics to clothing to food services, automobiles, automobile-related consumer products. Now, out of that $15 trillion, about $642 billion is either customer returns, overstock, or 
products that, you know, for one reason or another were returned back to the retailer. Now, there's another $622 billion worth of overstock or surplus that never gets sold. So we've got roughly $1.2 trillion of product that's still in the stream. Now, about 48% of that does get resold out to different venues. You might see them, um, you know, liquidation sales or at a liquidation center because they've packaged them up as open box items. They sold them off to a third party and they sell them through another retail avenue. They get a little bit of money, but a variety of that product tends to end up being thrown in the garbage because for one reason or another, they feel it's unsellable, but it has the potential to be either recyclable or either repurposed, you know, for a social program or as a donation to a special interest cause. But a lot of these organizations find it a little bit simpler and much easier for them to just throw it away because it's more cost effective for them. Mm. You know, it's a very challenging, but these are the amount of numbers that get thrown away. Right now, consumer residential waste in Canada is about 9.4 million metric tons. Commercial waste is over 15.6 million metric tons. So it gives you an idea of, you know, compared to residential and commercial applications, how much is being thrown away. And this is just in Canada. Globally, you know, the numbers are 20 times that size. <laughs> so to, to sort of put this in a – because one of the things with large numbers is they're very impressive, but they're also almost by definition hard to sort of visualize. So yeah. when we start getting into the billions and – like the conceptual difference between a billion and a trillion is, is very – our brains aren't really designed for that type of number. So uh, what I, uh, to give it a sort of a, a, an example of what you're talking about, what, this would be maybe something similar to the case in the, in the first example that you gave of somebody having a big screen TV in their basement. Mm-hmm. And they decide they want to have a big screen TV in their bedroom instead. And so, but because it's going to be such a pain to get it from the basement to the bedroom on the third floor, they throw out the one in the basement and order a new one for the third floor. That's really, at a base level, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. So a lot of these uh, cases too, I mean, you, you, we had a number of conversations and, and I don't to, I, I don't know to what degree you're, uh, you're comfortable or, or able to get into certain details, but at a, at a lot of levels, there, there were some uh, conversations that we had that were talking around uh, uh, some really big items that were, that, that were sort of more valuable almost as recycling, but just due to not even malice or, or, or sometimes just uneducation or sometimes just impatience, uh, that there were easy solutions for things that just for whatever reason, there wasn't a really good enough incentive or enough foresight to, to take advantage of those things. Well, sure. Um, about two years ago, I was dealing with an insurance claim. It was uh, as a result of a uh, Water damage, um, the burst, uh, the pipes burst. You know, the the fire hydrant, the the fire suppression system burst. You know, in this warehouse, and they were manufacturing cloth and leather types of couches and love seats. Mm-hmm. Now, the insurance company asked me to go in and evaluate what was uh, what was still good and what was garbage. Now, about forty percent of the the product was damaged, so we had to throw that away. But the remaining sixty percent of it was untouched, no water damage and completely reusable. The insurance company decided to just write off the check and give, you know, the claim to, you know, the business owner and asked us to throw away everything else. I tried to convince them, you know, these are brand new couches. Donate it to the furniture bank. You know, do something socially responsible and don't impact, you know, uh, we had to bring in eight 40-yard containers to fill all this garbage in. It went to landfill. And that's from one site? Was 40 that's just from containers. one site. Yeah. So, uh, again, I, I understand there's a limit to the specifics we can do here, uh, but let's, in a general sense, uh, give me a sense of sort of what your feeling of the, because a lot of people, so for instance, on the ground, and, and my first reaction was, yes, but what about the sort of social license to operate and the, and the so- corporate social responsibility? Wouldn't it be value enough? In, in the amazing things you could do by donating these places, that the social value you would get out of it, the good PR you would get out of it, the, the positive customer ex, uh, exposure that you would get out of doing something that, yes, okay, this cost us a bit of money, but we did a, such a demonstrable amount of definite good. Wouldn't be enough. Is, why doesn't that happen more? Well, because at the end of the day, it's about the bottom line. They want to recover as much of money they have in terms of the production associated to that product that they have surplus for. So they'll follow a reverse logistics you know, program in terms of, oh, this is an open box item, it's still brand new, well, we'll sell it at a slight discount, but we'll able to recover some of our monies. They follow a very systematic process in terms of trying to recover as much money as possible. Donations tend to be the last thing 
recycling is um, a big key factor for many manufacturers if they can recycle some of the unused plastic components or metal, you know, shavings as a result of, you know, what they're manufacturing. Yes, they do have those efficiencies. But unfortunately, once it's a finished product, they don't have efficiencies in place in terms of how to repurpose it or recycle it. They leave that to us or to our municipal waste disposal programs, you know, to handle efficiently. So, you know, this is one of the reasons why I created this solution because I'm like, look, ladies and gentlemen, let's find a different avenue rather than creating more waste. Let's start and find a more socially responsible avenue where we can generate important funding to social causes, charitable organizations, and nonprofit organizations. So, I mean, I think uh, it could easily be done, and, and, and I'm at the risk of doing so right now, just sort of wag my finger at those corporations and say, you should do better. But the, the reality is the reality. So what can other people do? What can people at home do? What can organizations do? What can not-for-profit groups do? What can activists do to try and open this conversation and make it easier for these companies to do this? What, what role can people outside of the companies that aren't beholden to this sort of single out, uh, outcome of the bottom line do to, to improve this situation? Well, one of the things they can do is, um, you know, especially for those who work in the retail or the manufacturing industry, they can speak to the general managers. They can speak to their CEOs or CFOs and say, hey, guys, are we doing a socially responsible thing with our overstock or surplus assets? What are we actually doing with it? Why don't we repurpose it in a responsible way? Have that conversation in-house. And this is something that's very important because many of these business owners do want to do the right thing. Don't get me wrong. You know, they're socially conscientious individuals, but at the end of the day, they have to support, you know, their business and the families that work there. So they want to make sure that they're making money and they thrive and they survive. But at the end of the day, it's must, sometimes more cost effective to throw it away. Well, have that conversation now. Look at different avenues outside of the box. Speak to, you know, environmental programs or, you know, other social programs within your community. Get some ideas on how we can develop a better strategy to deal with a lot of this waste mm. or what I see as valuable waste. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, and, and let's talk a little bit about uh, more about that. So, I mean, one of the things you were saying was that, I mean, there, a lot of stuff isn't, you know, being recycled when it could be. Uh, there's, there's certainly good items that just sort of get easier. And I think part of the reason for that, and this is coming back to that numbers point a little bit, was that, you know, for if we look and say, you know, there's a, you know, a billion dollars or two billion dollars worth of materials that were perfectly good. Uh, and, you know, so why did they go to landfill or why did they, you know, get written off or whatever this and that is that what we have to take into con uh, 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 contrast is the idea that this is a line item next to several other numbers with many more zeros behind them. And so that these sorts of things really do seem like, you know, rounding errors when compared to the types of transactions that these things are doing. So it, is, is it sort of fair to say that, well, it, it is, is very reasonable to expect these companies to do better and to improve and that we should help them do that, that it's kind of from a human perspective, sort of understandable that this it doesn't register highly for them amongst all of their other responsibilities? Well, one of the problems with... Um consumer products. Take, for example, your laptop there. Many of the manufacturers um, manufacture based on a cost-effective business model. They want to offer a great product at the lowest price possible to the consumer because that helps them, you know, in terms of their bottom line. I had a conversation with a computer manufacturer, you know, uh, organization yesterday, and they said, no, Tom, we don't put a lot of recyclable content in our product because it's too expensive. So, we manufacture product or they manufacture product that's challenging for us to recycle. Mm -hmm. You know, e-waste is a great example. You know, uh, there's enough uh, gold, silver, uh, and other non-ferrous and ferrous metals, you know, within a variety of electronic devices where it becomes literally an urban mine that's much more profitable than, you know, actually, you know, mining natural resources, you know, from the get-go through the recyclable materials. And it's much more profitable. And a lot of people are getting more involved with that in terms of the e-waste impact. But the, the manufacturing side is where the challenge is. They're not creating a product that's easy enough for us to recycle. Well, and as you're saying, they're, they're, they're valuable materials. They're just dangerous materials. And so uh, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was manufactured landscapes that took a really good look at these, like, giant mountains of electronics waste. And these, like, small children in, in China just, like, picking through it and picking out the little gold chips and stuff to make an income. So, I mean, it's valuable and somebody's gonna, going to do it, but we're, we're, we're doing it in the most destructive possible way to be done. That just creates hardship all the way down the line. But, hey, you got to sell a computer. Some of the recyclers, uh, you know, internationally... Um, tend to transport product overseas for processing. It's much more cost effective. You know, they won't openly say that, 
but it has happened. I've seen the newspaper articles. I've, you know, read the controversy, you know, across the world in terms of seeing whether it's India, China, Bangladesh, Pakistan, doesn't matter. It's a variety of different regions where this product is being shipped over. Now, many of these countries are taking the initiative and banning the shipment of specific products, but there's still stuff getting through. There's still stuff getting through because they don't want this waste here. They can't handle it here, so they sent it to an area where it's more cost-effective to rely on that labor cost to help them process you know, many of the recyclable materials out of our e-waste or other products. So I think that that makes a perfect segue to get into sort of the, uh, the the other section there. We've talked about the companies themselves, about maybe some of the areas where they're doing poorly, and maybe talked a little bit about why, well, they still definitely need to improve. It's, it's sort of to some degree understandable why they make the decisions that they do. And we've talked a little bit about the public. What, if anything, is the role of the government in this conversation? Is, is really the only solution here, the, the effective solution to get somebody to come in and just regulate the heck out of this industry? Or, I, I mean, will that is, is the fear that if you overregulate these, the, you know, these businesses won't be viable anymore? So what's the role and, and how possible is it just to regulate these problems away? Well, you know, that's a controversy in itself. You know, if... Um, OES, which is the governing body, I guess, in Ontario that deals with um, e-waste. Unfortunately, there was a very condescending article that, uh, you know, was published maybe about a year, two years ago in regards to many of the people that are board members or manage this department are actually executives from the retail market. It's just like, you know, the the National Energy Board, you know, hiring um I was reading the article just recently, you know, somebody from the oil and gas industry to help manage a national energy board program. It doesn't make any sense. You know, it's it's going to be governed, you know, by, you know, more the bottom line than it is by, you know, uh, you know, sustainability programs that are good for our environment, you know, the socially conscientious, you know, approach, you know, to handling this. You know, maybe I'm getting it all wrong, but, you know, I, I just find that very frustrating. You know, our... our our political infrastructure is trying to be responsible, but who they're delegating is, is not being very responsible because I don't think they're working in the best interest, you know, of the community and possibly, you know, the environment. Maybe they're working in the best interest of their own needs. <laughs> mm. And so I think the uh, uh, the final section here, well, first of all, I'll remind anybody who, or I'll let anybody know who's just tuning in now. We're uh, speaking to uh, uh, Tom Menemanakis from Ethos Assets. Uh, he provided me with a number of extremely eye-opening uh, links on this topic, uh, talking about projections of consumer sales and the percentages of e-waste and all sorts of stuff. I'm just going to dump all of those links on today's show post. So this is a topic that was interested to you. Uh, I will have a link to uh, Tom's website. You'll be able to contact Tom there as well if you have any questions. Uh, hopefully he'll have time to answer you. <laughs> He's a pretty busy guy, uh, but, uh, but you'll, you'll be able to look at that information yourself uh, as well there. Uh, I think the, the, the final thing here, and, and this is sort of something uh, you know we've been talking about and uh, about is something that needs to happen. Uh, and at some point it needs to happen that uh, you know, the companies have a point in the sense that they're sort of locked into this system that is the way it is, and it, it is what it is, and it isn't what it is. And, and so despite the fact that we may not like, you know, the behavior of these companies, if you look at the what they are as as entities and the system in which those entities operate, it's nobody. It's not a shock. They're operating exactly the way that the system has programmed them to be required to operate. So at a certain level, there's only so much they can do without help. Uh, and so the final step here, and, the, and this is a conversation we've had a few times that really needs to happen is at some point, some of these people with authority inside some of these companies, maybe some of these thought leaders inside these industries really need to sit down with the people who do focus on those small details that seem like liner notes and write off errors for the companies, the, the activists who are upset about these issues. And instead of the companies just ignoring them and the activists just hating them, at some point there needs to be a constructive conversation here. And I think the people with the authority to, to make some of these changes and decisions and to evolve on some of these issues, sitting down with the people who probably know 10 times more about some of the problems with these companies than the companies themselves do, uh, really there's a constructive conversation waiting to happen there. Well, yeah, absolutely. And this is one of the things I've been doing with a lot of CEOs and CFOs recently is I've been going in there as, you know, a mediator and sort of a direct liaison. I said, look, ladies and gentlemen, I understand you're scared about having these conversations and what it may do in terms of your whole bottom line process or the cost benefit analysis as a result of, you know, your, your retail sales, whatever it might be. Let me, let me bring these collaborators in here, have an open discussion so they can understand where your position is and you can understand where their position is. I think you can find some common ground. You know, and this is one of the things that I'm willing to facilitate and one of the things that I want to do because I, I came from the corporate world. I understand what their objectives are, but I also understand being socially responsible is good for their bottom line. You know, it has to be. 
It is. It's part of their process now. They're more. They're becoming more aware of it in terms of the whole social responsibility. But unfortunately, these are executives and business professionals who are not tapped into the whole social environment that you and I are. And they need to have more open conversations with these activists and these socially responsible, you know, change makers in our world. And as a result of that, I think the first company that does take that initiative and starts integrating some of those practices will beat out the competition tenfold. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a perfect place to stop for now. Tom is going to stick around for the rest of the show. We're going to have Katie from 350 join us in just a moment uh, to talk about the debate. So uh, without further ado, we're going to go to our music break, and we'll be right back to talk about that. You're listening to The Green Majority. Uh, uh, and then uh, Jason, our tech, is going to jump in. What are we going to listen to this week? We're going to hear uh, – we got a request actually from our own Kevin Farmer last, last time I was in, and this is the song Full Circle by Half Moon Run. We are back. Yes, uh, you can you can pull that in a little, Katie. So we pulled Katie into the studio here in the last minute. Uh, Katie Krela from Three Fifty, uh, one of the co-presidents. Is that currently correct? Uh, not quite yet, but soon. Okay, to be. soon to be soon to be co-president or soon to be president. Soon to be co-president. Okay, from Toronto Three Fifty, uh, Toronto Three Fifty members of which I think I've had at this point five or six different members from the organization in over the last eight years. Uh, very strong uh, group of Toronto climate-focused, uh, I would say climate-focused uh, uh, environmental group, uh, largely of students. And uh, we've called Katie, uh, Katie in here to fill in for the empty seat uh, that is normally Stefan uh, to to uh, hopefully um, say all the things that Stefan wanted to say because he was very upset that he couldn't be here today. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit now for the next uh, for the next segment about last night's leaders' debate, federal Leaders Debate 2015, the first one, and potentially, as outlined, and this was the first thing I noted from watching the, the repeat this morning, 
potentially the only one with all four leaders. Uh, so I will leave it uh, there for now. I, I did. Uh, uh, I actually got in from work halfway through, so I watched as much as I could at the beginning this morning. So I've missed like the the middle five minutes there. Uh, but I will. Uh, I will lean on uh, Katie quite heavily as well, who's who is at a, a, a debate watching party till late. I hear. <laughs> uh, Tom, debate watching party. That's kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, it was packed. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, so if you would uh, maybe just give us some of your uh, early impressions here, and then I have I made a bunch of notes about uh, some of the things I wanted to point out as well. But we'll, we'll start with you. Okay. Um, okay. Well, thanks for having me, Darren. Um, this is my first time ever on the radio. Woo! So, uh, you know, I'll never get this again. I'll never get to go back. But I'm happy <laughs> to be here. Um, so, yeah. I mean, I, I my first impressions of the debate. I have to say this. I said this yesterday on my way to the debate that. You know, the Canadian federal election always, I can't help but always feel that, uh, you know, we're all voting for who we want to be our new dad. Um, and I felt that was very heavily present in last night's debate. So, you know, the patriarchy is is alive and well, and um, I think it's important to acknowledge that. Uh, so, you know, in this debate, we can choose between our cool dad or our kindly but slightly bumbly dad or our strict dad who's kind of hard to talk to. Um, and then, you know, Elizabeth May is kind of our older, older rebellious sister who maybe indicates that maybe we don't even need a dad <laughs> anymore. Um, but that said, uh, you know, it was great to see, um, you know, energy combined with environment and climate and pipelines as a, a, a big part of the debate. I think, mm -hmm. it, you know, it was a whole topic. Um, and, you know, I think that this is exactly the kind of uh, climate change debate we would want to see if the year was 1992. Yes. Um, so uh, our, our political leaders are still very much uh, behind, and I think uh, they underestimate both the urgency and the severity of climate change. I think they also underestimate um, Canadians uh, and First Nations' uh, understanding of the, of the severity and urgency of the problem as well. Um, so it's a little bit, it feels a little bit like glad handing a little. So one of the first things that I uh, one of the first things that I noticed was that uh, until I think and and again I'm going from memory here and, I, and there was about six minutes or to six to fifteen minutes of the debate that I didn't see so uh, correct me if I'm wrong here uh, but it, it was my impression that the only person who ever there was a lot of middle class middle class middle class uh, the the first and potentially only person to say anything other than the middle class as uh, First Nations and impoverished communities and all sorts of you know everybody else uh, other than the rich. Uh, was Elizabeth May. And then I think Trudeau sort of caught the cue from her and, and that she said that at once as well. So that's an important thing. I mean, it was it, it, what frustrated me was that because I came in late, I saw more of the sort of post debate or the before the last section, there was they sort of they went to the pundits. And I actually felt like the, the moderator was doing a fair job. And I know some people were very unhappy with him. I, I'm not sure what their concerns were. Maybe I missed something, but I thought he was being rather I, fair. I would agree, yeah. uh, the commentary on during the breaks, though, was completely insane. They were they were all talking about well so and so looks strong and so who cares if they were strong they look strong because they were lying you know who looks really strong liars when they're just like I'm just going to say something until it's accepted uh, so there was all sorts of nonsense and they're like well he looked really strong when he said that well he's making it up that's his whole game right and I don't even need to say who we're talking about we all know who we're talking about and one thing was that there was uh, uh, there was a there was a number of times when uh, uh, Harper would say something, and at various times, all three of the other leaders was like, that's not true, that's not true. And when they went to the break, they were just like, well, he looked very strong on that point. <laughs> and, and I think, and, and my point here was not, again, it's not to be sort of partisan, but it's to decry that this is a major problem with our political discourse, and particularly the media, and in even McLean's that I think did a fairly decent job in other areas, completely dropped the ball and completely let down Canadians who were watching that debate, was that if somebody, <laughs> if somebody says something it's not true it is not partisan to say that it is not true and there were a number of things that were just either insanely twisted facts uh that were as as elizabeth may said pulled out of context or just outright flat right not true right um you know going to the uh, debate party uh luckily you're mostly spared from the commentary in between because that's when everyone's going to get another drink um <laughs> But yeah, I, I, it would be nice if uh, commentators would take that time to, you know, fact check rather than comment on people's, you know, body language and what they're wearing. Um, 
And it's true that uh, that happened many times when, especially Elizabeth May would call it Stephen Harper. I think the probably strongest one is when she he stated that, you know, he's the only government that's both lowered greenhouse gas emissions and grown the economy at the same time, both statements of which are untrue. And, uh, you know, luckily she got this the chance to point out that the only reason there was a slight dip in greenhouse gas emissions growth was entirely due to the recession of the 2008 recession well, and, he and loves then it he, immediately went back up and he loves his uh, intensity target so actually if you look at the intensity target during that the percentage of the economy if you account for the downfall they the emissions still went up so it's it's right. like, it's, yeah, it's exactly. fractally yeah. wrong which is my new expression it's wrong at every fractally conceivable sc- like at that. every conceivable scale it's wrong yeah <laughs> well and yeah and you mentioned uh you know the predominance of talking about the middle class and, you know, and Elizabeth May did manage to get in uh, the fact at the end that that no one had debated, you know, the massive growth and inequality in Canada. Uh, I think she's potentially the only person that's ever mentioned the homeless in a leader's debate ever. Yeah, and she mentioned truth and reconciliation and all that uh, right at the end. But yeah, I mean, it's funny that they keep talking about the middle class because honestly, like, Canada has no middle class anymore. I mean, the middle class has been shrinking for the past 10 years. And I think um, Canada's always been, you know, at the bottom of, you know, inequality compared to other um, countries. And it's it's getting worse. Um, so, I mean, again, that's a little like glad handing, right? It's just sort of um, using expressions that don't really have any meaning anymore, like the middle class, like um, sustainability. I mean, I feel that that term is so played. <laughs> you know, we've had stevel- the the concept of sustainable development for, you know, 20 years now, and it, it's, it's not working. Um, and even, you know, the referring to, um, you know, when uh, talking about helping, we're helping the environment as though the environment is not us, right? <laughs> so stopping climate change is not about helping the environment. I mean, it is, but it's it's about helping us. It's about helping the people, the 13,000 people who've had to move out of their homes in Saskatchewan because of forest fires. Uh, the biggest drought ever in Alberta apparently is happening right now. I mean, these things don't come up, as well as the concept of climate justice in general and who's going to be first and worst hurt by climate change in Canada and throughout the world. So even there's not this acknowledgement of Canada's responsibility to the international community when it comes to climate change. I mean, that was not on the table either. Um, yeah, and there, we'll, we'll, get, we'll have an opportunity for more of that when I, in the third segment when I play the clip sure. from uh, Bernie Sanders because he, he essentially says what you wanted to be said. So we'll, we'll, right. we'll, get, <laughs> we'll get back to some excitement on somebody talking sense on that. Uh, but one of the other things, like the other thing that really stood out for me as well was that um, – and and I, I I only bring it up because it's one of the things which uh, Harper likes to use to distract from questions about the environment, which is national security. And May knocked that question out of the park. Uh, there was all this flim-flamming about what's the appropriate response, what's the appropriate response, but there was no discussion until they got to Elizabeth May about what the actual thing, what the what is the actual thing you're responding to, right? So, uh, uh, you know. He was obfuscating quite a bit, but what, you know, within the limited understanding of how he had presented it, what Harper said makes sense. It's sort of that makes sense if you limit it to the things that he was limiting it to, um, which is sort of how he likes to play things. Uh, Mulcair and Trudeau had sort of different ways of sort of agreeing with him while, while, trying to, while trying to make themselves look distinct. So it's like, well, I don't entirely disagree because they know that it, it polls well, but I disagree enough that you should appro- approve of my position more than Harper's. And Elizabeth may just stop the show as far as I was considered. I said, essentially, like, she didn't say this, but you she might as well have said, what the hell are you guys talking about? This is a complicated issue. There isn't one side. If we back one side, we're the, like, it's enemies on all sides here. You can't just start, it, we can't just say they're the bad guys and act like the people that were helping when we bombed those people isn't helping other people. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it was the most glaring opportunity of seeing how just completely, and it's not that I don't think any of the leaders understand this, it's how much they're completely just making stuff up that they think will play well, and that has no connection to reality whatsoever. And I think that was no at no point more clear than on the ISIS question. Yeah, I mean, ISIS is obviously a really complicated question, and I'm actually just reading a book on it right now. Um, uh, so I'm starting to kind of get the fullest picture, and yeah, of course, it's way more complex and, you know, than than we, than 
than the way they talk about it, uh, then anyone understands it. And I mean, the, 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 uh, (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. Like, I mean, Saudi Arabia and it's it's funded most of ISIS, right? And so, I mean, the, it's funding this and, and sacrificing that and backing this person instead of that person. I mean, nobody is understanding what they're doing at all. Mm. Right? <laughs> there, there's a whole bunch of, to varying degrees, you know, bad regimes or bad regimes that have stuff we like, so we pretend they're not bad regimes and stuff. And and there's there's a mixture of people we've decided to publicly say that we don't like and publicly say that we do like messed up on both sides of all of those fences. So by definition, there's nobody essentially you could bomb in that entire part of the world that wouldn't have negative consequences for us, even if they've done stuff we don't like. Like it's a really, really messy situation. Right. Uh, and, and, and I think it, and, and the reason I bring that up because it's obviously we're, this is an environment show and we're doing that. Mm-hmm. The reason I bring that up is because it was the greatest example of, yeah, just like that, for climate change, just like that for uh, uh, for sovereignty issues, just like that for First Nations issues, just like that for truth and reconciliation. It's it's all of this the blah, 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 blah language that doesn't appreciate any of the actual details. And those details really matter. Well, and I mean, if Canada wants to do anything in that situation, I think we should uh, think about our, our refugee policies, our mig- migration policies, our immigration policies, um, because just like the crisis in the Middle East, Climate change as well is going to cause a whole bunch of refugees and, like, are we going to help them or are we not going to help them? What is our responsibility? Um, so well, and, sir, and that reminds me of one more thing on the, on the ISIS thing, which was the one thing that Elizabeth May didn't say that I was expecting her to say was that even the Pentagon is saying that a significant portion, uh, aside from the U.S. giving them arms, of the actual existence of ISIS is climate change caused droughts in the Middle East. So you want to stop ISIS? Deal with climate change. Yeah, it's really that simple. And that's the U.S. Pentagon and and a whole number of other people. But the the American U.S. Pentagon is the people who are saying that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's it's yeah, it just makes me crazy. Sorry. Go ahead, Tom. But what's the underlining reason? um, You know, uh, ISIS has roots from and I've read a lot of the news articles. I've heard the conspiracy theories, you know, from the U.S. and Canada. Typically, ISIS had roots, you know, from uh, from the Afghanistan wars, the interventions, you know, of Western, you know, Canada, U.S., France, uh, Western societies, you know, going in there for what? To protect the interests of humanitarian interests, you know, as they outlined it, the, you know, as uh, Mr. George W. Bush said, you know, the WMDs, um, you know, the controversy in terms of weapons of mass destruction. But no, you know, at the end of the day, it was about oil. You know, that was not openly discussed, but it was about Mm -hmm. oil. And what is one of the greatest things that is creating a vast majority of the climate change in our world is as a result of oil. It's about oil and crisis. And everyone knows people people know that crisis is coming. And and for some people, that means stockpiling weapons and taking land and securing your position. And and here is another thing. And I guess it's just, again, it's because it's a nuanced thing, even though it's a devastating point. I am shocked. Uh, I'm shocked, actually, not just that Ms. May didn't bring this up, but that none of the uh, three opposition or or, uh, candidates to be uh, brought it up was, you know, it's really interesting how uh, interested Harper is in bombing um, uh, the Middle East uh, because guess what our economy because of him is based on? Oil. What Guess what price of which goes up when there's instability in the Middle East? Oil. So there's a, there's a pretty strong financial incentive to, for destabilization in the Middle East on behalf of a country that's trying to centralize its entire economy around oil. Uh, it's in it's, his financial incentive to destabilize the Middle East, and I'm shocked nobody said that. Well, Canada is one of the top five producers of oil destabilizing one market to help make yours look better is good for the economy. Mm-hmm. And and it allows, you know, other people who do not deserve to be made, named and their name is banned from the show. I'm warning the two of you not to mention it. Uh, but other people who go around uh, making claims about, oh, that's why we should invest in Canadian oil because it's friendly and nice and comes with smiley stickers on it. Yeah, can we talk about, on that note, can we talk about pipelines? Yeah, please do. <laughs> uh, uh, I can go all day with that. Yeah, so we're, we've got about two or three minutes left before I want to go to the final break. So let's make this the final comment. Okay. Uh, but take as long as you want. But we'll, we'll make this the final segment for our next break. Um, yeah, I mean, it was really disappointing to see the pipeline debate still concentrate on like, well, this pipeline or that pipeline, and which is your pipeline and my pipeline and all this, when and not um, draw any attention to that the ultimate 
um, issue of the pipelines is uh, the tar sands and its existence as the greatest source of greenhouse gases in Canada currently. It's more than transportation in total. Um, and, you know, the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers' uh, stubborn insistence that they're going to grow it by five times, you know, by 2050. Um, and, you know... Oh, hold on. I, by 2050, I thought Prime Minister Harper made a commitment by 2050 we would no longer be relying on fossil fuels. Well, exactly. But they want to grow <laughs> it. I thought that became 2100, I think. 2100? Yeah, it was yeah, 2100. It's 2100. So they're going to grow it by well, five times by 2050 and then collapse it in, yeah. entirely by 2100. That's his brilliant plan. Oh, well, and that's, I mean, but then even if you look at, you know, the NDP plan that, you know, that they rest their laurels on, Jack Layton's plan, it's a great plan. It's 80% below 1990 levels by 2050 but how but there's no they have no the, how are they going to do that and also invest in uh, these pipeline infrastructures I mean the for example the Energy East pipeline sends a clear market signal to you know investors in the this tar sense to invest more mm-hmm. um, and so you know and Elizabeth May kind of pushed uh, Mulcair a little bit on uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline mm-hmm. Uh, but more for you know its uh, threat to the like ocean and shoreline and uh, tankers and things like that. But she didn't make the climate argument there, mm. um, and I wish she would have pushed him on energy east a little bit more. Yeah. Um, and in that being said, too, you know uh, Trudeau and Mulcair are both now saying that they, or they say sometimes that they will require a client, you know, harsh climate tests and rigorous environmental tests for pipelines, but still, like, you know, in the same breath, assuming that those pipelines will get built. So yeah. how harsh is a test where the, where the result is already, you know, yeah, known? If, if you're pretty much assuming that the answer will be yes, right. then what kind well, of test Well, and I really think that we need to start pushing them to, to name the National Energy Board and talk about the National Energy Board and, like, okay, if you're going to make a climate test, how are you going to do that? Because it currently doesn't have one. Yeah. It's currently, like, recognized more and more as the, one of the most corrupt, uh, bankrupt institution. Uh, you know, recently, um, Mark Ellison, who is, was the former CEO of Hydro Power, dropped out of the Kinder Morgan proct- process, saying that the NEB is uh, captured by industry. Uh, uh, even more recently, a prominent econ- economist who was intervening in that as an expert intervener dropped out. She wrote a letter stating all the reasons why the uh, National Energy Board is a worthless institution and it's not even worthwhile intervening. Is the new director an ex-executive of Kinder Morgan? Right, yeah. So j- the day before he uh, he opened the ele- announced the election, Stephen Harper. Conflict of interest. He's a he's a, a consultant for Kinder Morgan. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. So uh, we could easily do an entire show on yeah. pipelines. Katie, maybe we'll be uh, we'll be gracious enough to come back and 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 help us with that. But well, let's take a break for now. I want to do a brief segment here on the uh, Americans because uh, uh, there was both the Republican primary last night, which is uh, terrible because I I had I, I only got to see two thirds of the Canadian one and I missed the the comedy in purpose of the of watching the american one uh but more importantly than that i have a, I have a brief clip from bernie sanders speaking to uh senator inhofe senator inhofe is the uh guy that made the youtube fame of th- bringing a snowball into the senate floor and saying see there's no climate change because i have a snowball um Bernie Sanders, uh, the senator from Vermont, who's doing very well and is the closest by any by a mile uh, challenger to Hillary Clinton for the Democratic nomination, uh, whether or not you think he can surpass her, he's definitely being a legitimate challenger. And and I have a, a very brief clip of him speaking to a climate change committee to Senator Inhofe uh, that we're going to get to after the break. And then we're going to talk very briefly about the Clean Power Plan, which is the clean energy plan that uh, Obama has just put forward. Uh, there's a very excellent, very, very detailed uh, website about that. We're going to just skim through it a little bit uh, because I promised we would talk about it when I was uh, br- briefly forgotten for a moment that the debate would be uh, the night before today's show. And we will definitely dig more into the debate and into the uh, the U.S. climate change plan next week as well. But we're going to go to a music break now and we'll, we'll come back and deal a little bit with it. So Jason, our second music break please okay uh, we're going to go to a song by a band called the burning hell i thought i'd play a song by them because they're playing in town uh in here in toronto next wednesday so this is the burning hell and their song my name is matthias in the 60s my mom was hip and mini skirted she was raised as a catholic but then she converted she loved my dad's religion she loved him too and that 
You're listening to the final segment here on this week's edition of The Green Majority. I am your host, Darren Kaster. I am sitting uh, in the studio with two live guests, which happens so, so very rarely. So it is absolutely my pleasure to have uh, Katie Krilov from uh, Toronto 350 and Tom Menemarakis. I'm sorry. Menemarakis. Uh It's actually a bit of a tradition here. You wouldn't know this, but for eight years running now, that uh, uh, you, you should actually be insulted if I didn't mistake your name because that's kind of a thing we do here. So Yeah, you mistook mine too. It's Welcome. Krilov. Yeah, well, yeah. Krilov. I Cree, Cree. Cree well, Cree hey, you know what? Maybe you should spend some time at Taste of the Danforth this weekend, <laughs> and you'll get the pronunciation correct. That's true. That's true. Well, the thing is, we're also friendly around here, and, and, and I mean, I see Katie all the time uh, as well at, at all sorts of various things, but we're also friendly. I never, ever use people's last names, why right? Would so you? Why would I? Uh, yeah, I'm not going to call you Miss ever, just so you know. And don't ever call me Mr. Uh, so we're going to go right now. Uh, uh, Jason's got a, a clip queued up for us here. So, again, I was teasing this right before the break. Um, this is a clip of a senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders. Um, uh, sorry, senator from Vermont, Bernie Sanders, uh, talking to Senator Inhofe. Senator Inhofe is I, – I forget his actual specific title, but it's something like he's the head of the Senate Environment Committee. I believe that's it. Senator Inhofe is the one that was famous on YouTube for uh, bringing a snowball into the Senate floor and basically almost literally saying, see, there's no climate change. So this is not in that – this is not from this case, but because he's the head of the Senate Environment Committee – uh, there was a hearing. Uh, essentially, the hearing. Uh, I don't. I don't know what all of the backstory, um, but I, I believe it was uh, pretty much pressured by somebody uh, from the EPA, where they they didn't even want to have this hearing, and somebody from the EPA basically got them on the inside, and and somebody on the committee forced this hearing to happen, and it was a it, it was a meeting really that nothing much came of it, other than the fact that Bernie Sanders just embarrassed Inhofe so badly. Uh, now, for the sake of brevity, I had to clip out a little bit of the beginning of this clip, and I had to clip out the entirety of Inhofe's response. Inhofe's response was amazing because after Bernie Sanders speaks, uh, his response to it, his comeback to it, essentially was, but you got me. Like, you just, there was nothing. It was so embarrassing what he responds to this. We don't have time to play it, so I'm going to put the clip on the website. If you want to hear the rest of the clip, please go and watch it. If for no, nothing else, it is hilarious. But the reason I wanted to play it today, uh, aside from the fact that, uh, of course, we're, we're getting into the rumblings of an American election here at the same time, uh, and that does have big implications uh, for the U.S., was that this is the type of language that uh, is the sort of thing that Elizabeth May might say, but but. 
she is not in a position to have the sort of podium that Bernie Sanders has uh, for a variety of reasons. So I, I just really wanted to play it because here's somebody in a level of authority that it might be uh, it might be a super distant long shot, but has a reasonable possible chance at being the next U.S. president, as slim as it may be, to have somebody who would say this. But the issue that we're dealing today is of enormous importance. And what it really comes down to is whether, as a nation, as the most powerful nation on earth, we are going to listen to the science. When we build weapons systems that cost billions of dollars, we take it for granted that the engineers know what they're talking about. When we invest in cancer research through the National Institute of Health, we assume and believe that the doctors and scientists know what they are talking about. But right now, we are in a very strange moment in American history. And that is while traditionally there are differences of opinion on labor issues, on health care issues, that's what happens year after year, we are now at a very strange moment. And that is we have virtually an entire political party that is rejecting basic science. And the science is no longer in doubt. Some 97% of scientists who have written in peer-reviewed journals say the following. Climate change is real. It is significantly caused by human activity. It is already causing devastating problems in our country throughout the world. Yesterday, the newspapers reported that in Arizona, they're worrying about how Phoenix and other cities are going to get water because of the terrible drought we have seen in the southwest. Australia is burning up. We have had extreme weather disturbances, major storms that have cost us billions and billions of dollars. Sea levels are rising, which may flood among other cities, the great city of New Orleans, New York City, Boston. But for some strange reason, while we agree on science in almost every area of our life, in this area, we have a party that says, no, climate change is not real. It is maybe a hoax. It is something concocted by Al Gore or Hollywood. I am very proud that today, and I want to thank very much the panelists who are here, especially the former EPA administrators who are appointed by Republicans. I thank you so much for being here. Because while we can disagree on a million issues, we should not disagree on what scientists tell us. We should not disagree when scientists tell us that we have a window of opportunity, 10 or 15 years, to turn this thing around, to lead the world. Sure, John Kerry said the rest of the world has got to go forward. He is right, but somebody has got to lead. This country leads. And by the way, when we lead in transforming our energy system away from fossil fuel, you know what we do? We create millions of jobs through weatherization through energy efficiency, through wind, solar, geothermal, and other technologies that are out there. So I very much want to thank the former Republican administrators for coming here to Washington to say what I think is true nationally, that intelligent Republicans all over this country, we have, I'm not a Republican, my views are very different, but on this issue we can at least respect science, we can respect the planet, we can transform our energy system, and most importantly, maybe at the end of the day, we have a moral responsibility for our children and grandchildren so that 30 years from now, they do not look us in the eye and they say, hey, all the scientists told you what was going on. Why didn't you do something? Well, we have got to do something, and I thank you all very much for being here this morning. All right. Now, uh, again, as I said, I, we don't have time to play Senator Inhofe's response to that, but I will give you my executive summary, which was the blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Can it I vote just, for him for my dad, actually? Yeah. No. Okay. Well, I, I want to go for responses but, uh, to each of you, but for a brief response to that, uh, I saw a lot of head, head nogging, but we'll get a, we'll get a, a quick comment. Um, but the, the, the main thing there was that, like, like um, <laughs> it's, almost, it's almost so strong. And by so strong, I mean so factual. But it's it's shocking to see someone being so blatantly factual, <laughs> which is a f strange phrase to be uttering, um, that if if somebody – if he actually did – and again, it, there is a chance, but there's also legitimately a very small chance that that will be the next U.S. president. But if we had somebody that strong in the White House, in the U.S., it almost renders moot 
because of how much of a lead we take, that's exactly what you're saying. Because of how much of a lead, whether we like it or not, we in Canada take from the U.S. If we had Bernie Sanders as the American president, it almost doesn't matter who gets elected in Canada because there, we don't have an option, right? He's, he's a senator. Uh, uh, Sen, uh, Sanders is, is both progressive, factually based, but he's also a bully. And he doesn't take crap from nobody. And he, if even if we had Stephen Harper again, he would just be like, yeah, I don't care. Here's here's a whole bunch of things we're going to do, and I don't care if you like it or not. And uh, good luck with your tar sands. We're going the other direction. I mean, it, it's really that crazy. So uh, with that as my comment, uh, we've only got uh, about uh, six minutes here left. Uh, so I'll ask for a brief comment from each of you. Let's start with Tom. Well, the controversy, you know, what you talked about, Bernie Sanders being president, is being a Democrat, you know, with a Republican-run Congress, it's very hard for him to drive through, you know, initiatives that are going to be, you know, socially responsible, sustainable, environmental programs. You know, President Obama has been having those challenges, you know, for the past eight years. But, you know, what Bernie Sanders is absolutely correct. We were just talking about this during the break. Yes, uh, renewable energy is an economic driver. Taking away these billions of dollars of subsidies that, you know, our Canadian government and world governments are giving to the oil and gas industry and reinvesting it into renewable energy concepts and innovative science is an economic driver, probably far more than the oil and gas industry in terms of what they've been doing. Seriously. <laughs> uh, Katie? Um, yeah, I... I think one of the best parts of the debate last night, it sort of relates, is when Stephen Harper basically acknowledged that that uh, uh, President Obama doesn't listen to him at all and doesn't really care about Canada's position on Keystone XL at all. Mm. Um, so I think I agree with your comment that you know if we had if someone like that was in presidency in the U.S. then. You know, it doesn't really matter. With, with, with Tom's qualifier, somebody like that as president with uh, with enough sort of support from his of side that, that he didn't yeah. have his hands tied, then it, yeah. it all very quickly becomes a, becomes a moot point. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what I was wondering that I missed, and I'm wondering. Um, I was trying to look out for as much climate change stuff, but as I said, I, I did miss a, a good chunk of the middle of the debate. Uh, did anyone ever say the word climate change? And I'm sure Elizabeth May did, but did did anyone else say it? And did anyone ever get Harper to say the word climate change? That's what I'm more curious about. Because one of the things he loves to do is... uh, is he loves to just never say that word. And when forced to, he's like, yes, okay, it's real. But, you know, there's these other concerns and, you know, terrorism and blah, blah, blah. But he he has been forced on the record to very quietly be climate change. Did anyone make him say it during the debate? They did, actually. Yeah, they all said it. Um, and, you know, he, of course, referred to the – his – referred to the new agreement that he just made um, – at the the UN conference the other day, um, or the G7, I should say, mm-hmm. um, you know, c- kind of quietly referred to it. Um, but I think he, then he just got slammed by Elizabeth May. So, <laughs> but he did say the word climate. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I think uh, I think Bernie Sanders is, was that speech was amazing. I think uh, I'm not sure he, if here in Canada if we have such a debate about the science anymore. So it's, uh, you know, we have another kind of, it's, it's more about the economy that we have a debate about Yeah, I feel right like now. it's less yeah. a debate about the science and more just a minimization. Like, it's yeah. no public politician, well, no remaining public politicians will actually say it's not an issue. They just refuse to right. talk about yeah. it or they kind of mention it as an afterthought. So it's, it's sort of like, it's almost even worse. Because if you're a Republican and you say, I think this is nonsense and here's some real priorities, okay, you're wrong, but that's at least a position that you can take. Right. But being like, yeah, it's real, but yeah. look shiny over here. <laughs> is like is 10 times worse and here we have a lack of courage people just don't have the courage of their convictions um i would also say there too like i mean leading is a really important thing for the u.s to do as well uh he mentioned like the moral um the moral urgency for our children and grandchildren i think on the other side too we have to also push our um leaders who acknowledge the moral uh, debt we have towards the rest of the world, um, especially, you know, developing nations where we have, you know, gained all of the gain for the exploitation of fossil fuels over the last 150, 200 years. We have gained all of that gain <laughs> and a lot at the expense of of developing countries. So we, ha- we have a moral debt to them as well. And going into the Paris um, COP talks in December, I mean, that has to be a huge issue is what do... Uh, developed countries owe to developing countries in this, you know, transition. Yeah, and I think I'm sort of my final comment. We've got about two minutes left here, uh, so uh, my my final comment on that I think will be that. 
you know, one of the things that sort of said is like, well, okay, so some of the biz- biggest thing is, is not that we're using it, it's that we're exporting it, right? They're, they're selling it to two countries that are, that are developing right now, very quickly. They're exploiting it, actually. They're exploiting it. So, so one of the things they say is, so what do, you, well, what do you want us to tell them? That they don't deserve the same sort of development? Well, we haven't had. I say, well, okay, well, it's too late for that because, you know, maybe, maybe it would have been unfair for so much of the disproportionate advancement to go to us. Yes, okay, but that's, now we have to deal with today. That, that was yesterday, we have to deal with today. So today you're saying, no. So no. So here's what you do. It's very, 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 very simple. You develop an economy around renewable energy. You sell it at home and you manufacture it at home. And then you give them that technology instead of oil. It's the exact same thing and everybody wins. So it's the exact same argument. Everything happens, but we don't feed climate change in the process. And, and I don't want a single listener to, to go home today and ever, ever, ever let anybody tell them that because that is the most, one of the most nonsensical arguments for envelop- developing the oil, hands, uh, oil sands in existence. Uh, we have time for a brief closing comment from anybody if you like. Oh, actually, no, my clock skipped it. <laughs> that was the minute. I'm sorry. So that is it. Uh, if you want, we'll have everything in the show post for next week. Uh, and that was it. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 uh, 89. FM and our wonderful community partners. Have a good week.